Hello, and welcome to Common Law, a podcast of the University of Virginia School of Law. I'm Risa Golubuff. And I'm Leslie Kendrick. We're so excited to be sharing this debut episode of our new show with you. But first, a few words about what we're doing here. What are we doing here? What are we doing here? <laughs> well, I'm the dean of the law school, and Leslie's the vice dean. And in those positions, we get a kind of bird's eye view of the work that's being done by all of our faculty and the ways that their work fits in with and informs national trends and issues. And it's really a fascinating time to be thinking about the law and the place of the law in society. And so in the spirit of a new podcast and a new era in the 21st century, we figured it'd be interesting to dedicate the first season of our show to, well, the future, uh, at least the future of the law and the future of where law will inform what our society looks like going forward. That's right. If you subscribe to our podcast, which we hope you will, you'll find that at the top of the feed, there's a kind of preview episode where we're talking to each other about who we are and what we want to accomplish in the podcast and why we hope you'll listen. And we hope that you'll listen to that and hear more about our ideas for the future of the law and this season. But for now, just know that what we're talking about is how new technologies affect the world and how they affect the law. We'll be talking about blockchain technology, self-driving cars, the future of technology and national security, big data, lots of different topics and how they're going to affect the world and the law. Very futuristic stuff, right? Yes. (laughs) Very futuristic. So today's topic might sound less futuristic. We're talking today about criminal justice and the future of criminal justice. But I actually think it is fairly futuristic because we're talking about where the criminal law is going, partly because of technology, science, new forensic technologies and techniques, um, but partly because I think we've just recently entered a new era. And uh, and in thinking about that new era, I'm kind of excited. I know I'm the optimistic one. If you listen to that episode zero, You're you'll hear I'm the optimist. <laughs> but, you know, I just wrote this book uh, fairly recently. Right. So uh, you're also a historian. So you, you've got the long view on this. I do. De- I, I do. I hope I have a long view, but but that long view. So 10 years ago, I started writing this book on criminal justice and policing, and people would ask me about the end of my book, and it sounded pretty depressing because the end of my book was mass incarceration and uh, and a really bad punitive moment in our uh, criminal justice history. And here we are a few years later, and there's bipartisan support for criminal justice reform, and there are social movements moving toward criminal justice reform. And I just feel like we're in a totally different era. And when we talk to our guests today, and we'll introduce them in a second, I I think we'll hear, despite all of the problems that exist in our criminal justice system and the wrongful convictions that result from them, they're also going to tell us about what's changing, right, and what can change and, and how we can make change. So today we're talking about criminal justice and in particular the problem of wrongful convictions. And to talk about that, we have a dream team of two guests who are both involved with this question. One is Deirdre Enright of UVA Law's Innocence Project. Uh, She's the director of our Innocence Project Clinic, and her voice may be familiar to you from the podcast serial. Deirdre was featured on the podcast serial. We're so glad to have her. Thanks for having me. 
We also have with us best-selling author John Grisham. His voice is probably not familiar to you, but his name is. He's the best-selling author of many, many books, including The Firm. He's involved with the original Innocence Project in New York, and his book, The Innocent Man, was recently turned into a Netflix documentary series. Welcome, John. Happy to be here. We are so excited to have you both on the show, and we thank you for coming. Our pleasure. And you all go back a ways, don't you? John and I? Yes. He would deny that, but yes. Do you want to deny it now? How how long ago was it? We started the Innocence Project. I don't know if you're going to even remember this story, but one of my first days opening the Innocence Project, it was late on a Friday night, and I was the only one there because I was the only one that existed in the Innocence Project then, and the phone rang, and I picked it up, and someone said, hi, this is John Grisham. I'm trying to reach Deirdre Enright. And I, of course, thought it was someone making fun of me. So I immediately said, <laughs> yeah, right, and went on to say, you know, I was Queen Elizabeth. Her first instinct is always always be a smartass. I mean, that's, right <laughs> off the bat, it's always some kind of smartass remark from Deirdre. You get used to it after a while. And, and he ignores it and walks right on beyond it. And eventually I realized it really was John Grisham because I'd heard his voice before. And he wanted to talk about the Norfolk Four, which he was doing yeah. a ton of work on at the time. That was probably 10 years ago. So tell us about the Norfolk Four. It was a murder in July of 1997 in Norfolk uh, that involved a young 20-year-old bride of a sailor, a young couple from Pittsburgh. And um, he was at sea, came home, found his wife uh, raped and murdered in a little small apartment. And um, an area that was used by thousands of sailors where they lived with their you know, young families. And a cop at the crime scene um, uh, decided that one of the neighbors was probably a suspect, and another, another sailor. And so they dragged him in um, for a marathon uh, interrogation, and uh, he broke down and confessed. He was the first of four, um, and at one point the, it, the cops had nine sailors in jail, not just four, had nine, and uh, two of them wouldn't confess. They did everything but physically beat them. Uh, they threatened them with death and all this kind of stuff, and so... Anyway, they dismissed the charges against the others. So you had the, the four who were con- the four who confessed and were convicted and sent to prison. And um, uh, none of the four confessions were even remotely comparable to what happened at the crime scene. But it was such a fascinating um, uh, story of wrongful convictions and against four young boys serving their country who spent uh, most of them spent at least ten years in jail. Now they're all out. And and the spinoff from that is that there was a bad cop in that case who's now in prison. And our clinic has been applied to by over 15 people who had that police officer in their case. Yeah, it was a rogue oh. cop in Norfolk who his, uh, he did a lot of bad things. and went to, He's still in the federal pen, but he's, he was sort of an expert in getting false confessions. A lot of police departments kind of have a go-to guy who can squeeze a, a false confession. There's a lot of us, too, and I'm sure John is one of them, who um, think it stems a lot from the read interrogation method that police are mostly trained on in this country. And a lot, and it allows a lot of the things that happen legally um, to lead people into false confessions. So and what does that method look like? What so do do? it's suggesting answers. It's offering only two answers. It's offering people a, a, what they what appears to be an easier way out, like the lesser of two admissions. Yeah. Um, and, and with younger people or people that um, are more, I don't know, 
malleable. Um, they just outright suggest to them theories and say, this is what happened to you, but you blacked out. Or this is what happened to you, but you were too high to Or understand. you were dreaming. The dream, mm. dream sequence is, is a favorite one. Uh, the dirtiest trick that I think I've seen, and there's so many dirty tricks, they are the police are actually allowed by our Supreme Court to um, suggest a polygraph. Innocent people are too eager to take a polygraph, to prove they're innocent, to cooperate, to get out. The guilty people know better than take a polygraph. They don't take polygraphs, okay? But innocent people, uh, after six or eight hours of abusive interrogation, uh, will say, okay, sure, the cop says, how about a polygraph to clear your name? Sure, I'll do it, okay? So they, they string them up, wrap them up, do the polygraph, and um, most of the time they pass it, okay? But the cop is allowed to lie. So you take the polygraph, you go back to the room, dark room, you're sitting there, the cop walks in with a graph paper, and he throws it at you, and he says, you funked it, damn it. We now have proof you're lying. We know you're lying, and we can prove it. We'll use this in court. And these people have no way of, there's no defense. And it, it just, it's another breakdown, and they just keep breaking them down, breaking them down. And after only about 12 or 15 hours nonstop, you and I would confess to anything. I've talked to criminal, uh, one of the Norfolk Four guys said this, and you hear it all the time. He said, I would have confessed to killing my mother to get out of that room. Getting that, out of the room is the, the thing. Yeah, they just yeah. want to get out of the room. We have, uh, I'm on the board of the Innocence Project in New York, and we, we're up to like 370 DNA exonerations, mm-hmm. ironclad, biological proof we got the DNA. And fully 25% of those involve false confessions. What is the Innocence Project? Can you tell our listeners what's the Innocence Project? Well, it's kind of well, it's, it's it's kind of vague. There are about fifty of them around the country. One here at UVA, one at Ole Miss that we started down there. One at uh, uh, most of them are connected to law schools, but not all of them. The, none of them have enough funding. There's no there's no money really, to, not, or not much, not nearly enough. There's one big Innocence Project in New York, and it's the one started by Barry Sheck and Peter uh, Neufeld. 25 years ago. We just had our 25th anniversary. And and they kind of roam the country coast to coast, and they coordinate things with other innocence projects. They bring in other lawyers like Deirdre or your people local who need uh, help in local cases, and they sort of do their best to uh, quarterback the innocence work all over the country. There's so much of it, we'll never have enough lawyers. But we have a bad, and there's a network, a real great network of innocence uh, groups around the country. So there's the Innocence Project. There's a bunch of them, but the big one is the one in New York. When we're all apart, so if you take that name, the Innocence Project, you are you have to buy the trademark. You have to pay and be part of the network, and you have to abide by a lot of really yeah. good regulations yeah. that help everybody. Um, and I think really ours, the only difference between us and them, and it's a huge one really, is that we made the decision I made the decision that we would not just do DNA cases right. because error rates, there's no reason to suspect error rates are any different in any other cases. And those guys don't have DNA. Right. So we do all those kinds of cases and, and do many fewer DNA cases and take much more labor intensive um, because it's not just a biological t- forensic test. Um, but the students get to learn so much more because they have to investigate all these different junk sciences and witnesses. And just Say more about what are the other kinds of issues that come up if it's not DNA? Because I think a lot of people, in a lot of people's mind, innocence equals DNA evidence, right? So what, is, what are the other kinds well, of things? Well, and John, the New York Innocence Project sort of lists the 
seven deadly sins, right? And it's eyewitnesses, junk science, bad prosecutors, bad cops. Jailhouse um, snitches, right. junk science. Uh, there's about seven or eight reasons. for False it. confessions. False confessions. Seven or eight that, that uh, show up in almost every case or a combination of them. You take any innocence case and you can find those factors. And um, it's it's very difficult with a non-DNA case uh, the one, the ones that Deirdre takes is you have to go back to the scene of the crime. <laughs> you have to go back 15 years ago many times and go back to the scene of the crime and who was there and who were the witnesses and how and how the, what the cops do and what was the evidence and start trying to put together a case that is very difficult to solve. And th- those cases, it takes years. It takes years and thousands of hours to succeed if you succeed and we see a lot of cases where we don't succeed and we probably cannot succeed. Uh, and and it's, it's, it's very labor-intensive work. And there's the added problem, too, that um, in most states, after you have your trial and your, your court-appointed lawyer and your direct appeal, that is the end of the state's obligation to you in terms of buying you legal representation. And so everything that we're doing now is is not being done by the state. So when people when we solve things, people say, "Oh, look, the system worked." Well, we're not part of the system, right? We're we're outside the system and we're just sort of a lucky gift to them, right? That so we have our 12 cases in the beginning of the year and we have a backlog of over a thousand and Odds are there's a ton of innocent people in that pile, and the state owes them nothing, though they convicted them. Yeah. And a death row inmate is going to have a lawyer. They're going to have a – usually uh, it depends on the state. Some states provide uh, lawyers. Most don't. Uh, most of your big law firms up north, as we say, up north are going are gonna, to are gonna step in at some point and do work that is, is hard. To, it's incredible. The hours that some of these firms spend. Uh, I've made a lot of had a lot of fun and uh, made a lot of money poking fun at big law firms <laughs> over the years. <laughs> but I have great respect for them in many ways because they take these cases that are just brutal and uh, and commit the manpower to uh, often losing causes. Uh, but but the, the the people who get screwed here are, are the non-capital cases, wrongfully convicted. You don't have a lawyer, and you're just sitting there, okay, and you're writing letters to the Innocence Project. She gets them. We get them in New York, you know, by the by the thousands. And uh, you, you look at the mail and think, how can we possibly even screen all this stuff? Yeah, the first case that I ever worked on that is what sent me to law school was working as a paralegal for Skadden Arps. And um, I had stayed there for like four years trying different departments, thinking one of them would be the reason I would go to law school. And I couldn't stand any of it. And then the partner that I loved took a death penalty case. And we worked in El Paso for, I went out there for two years, I think. And it turned out to be the wrong guy. And it took over a million dollars. And I was in law school by the time we got him freed. Um, And he lived with me and my husband for the first year of our marriage, which is why it's been so wonderful. Wow. Um, probably, but like, probably the happiest year of your marriage. Right? It, was, <laughs> it was the most jolly. That's what her husband says. <laughs> I wish your husband I could, misses that guy. Huh? I wish I could share with you the look on my husband's face when I said, guess what I offered to Fred today? Um, but, you know, I remembered thinking people used to say to me, oh, well, that's too bad that you got the best, most exciting case that you'll ever get in your life in the first at a law firm because you'll never have that case again. And I have that case you all the a career time. Yeah. In that case, right? I mean, it just makes you really realize that this isn't something that happens infrequently. This isn't needles in a haystack. This is 
often. So how frequently do we think it happens? <clears throat> There's no way to ever know because we have two and a half million people in jail or prison, and um, it's, it, there's no way to take to go look at every case. Death penalty cases can review their error rates because they pay attention to them and because they have lawyers on them, and so they know and they can do as much as they can do. But like for us, um, people always talk about, you know, oh well, we get it right most of the time. We have no idea if that's uh, true, yeah. and 98 percent of the cases are pled. So. There's our adversarial system. Yeah. And oftentimes they're pled to uh, a person facing like non-serious charges or felonies, but nothing you know, violent or whatever. They'll plead to something they didn't do to get out of jail. Uh, so you've, that's a wrongful conviction. So you've got that wrongful conviction that that was just a, a procedural reason to get out of jail. Uh, that, that happens. That's probably the biggest cause of wrongful convictions is the, the plea bargain system. We're talking about cases that involve in – you know, serious crimes and, and people who are serving either on death row and facing the death penalty or life without parole or long sentences who are innocent. And there's there's no way of – but, I mean, it could be, it could be 10 percent. Um, oh, I think that – You think so, at least 10 percent? I, I just think given the um, what we put into these cases, which is almost nothing, and when they enter their pleas, they know nothing. So all they have is a lawyer telling them what the prosecutor can do to them and – they don't know what the prosecutor has, then they could all be lying. And so and and it's not cost effective for that lawyer to take that case and run with it. So we stepped into a case here in Charlottesville um, with a law firm and Jim Neal over at McGuire Woods. And we read the, I don't know, 17 year old's confession. And he just sat in the room saying, no, I didn't rape this girl at a high, at a high school. And no, I didn't do it. No, I didn't do it. And then the police officer said, I mean, that's the only way you go home. And he said, I go home. And he took the, I mean, he just right then and there, he was like, okay, I did it. And then, and had we not intervened, he would be in prison. But, and it was just, it was just a little thing that happened at a high school that got out of control. And his court appointed lawyer wasn't going to do what we did. That's for sure. At what stage do you get most of the cases that you have? Are these mostly post-conviction? Or tell us a little bit about what, what, what that looks like. So everything we do is post-conviction. Um, they've had their trial. They've had their direct appeal. The, now, procedurally, our problem in litigating is that usually they've been filing things pro se themselves for mm -hmm. years. So those things, because the procedural rules are so difficult, we are often limited to very few legal avenues because they've done their habeases, or we have to find something that the state hid to get back into habeas. So we're at post, we, we hope we can have a habeas because we like the habeas standards better than we like the writ of actual innocence. And um, then we have the writ of actual innocence, and then we have the governor. So just to be clear, right, mm -hmm. once you've had your trial and your appeal and your appeal's final, you're convicted, right? Right. And so the only way to, to get out of prison at that point or to undo that conviction is to say, my conviction was based on something unconstitutional that was done. Right. Right. And that's where habeas comes in. Right. And like, I, so the Sixth Amendment, I had a right to an effective lawyer. That's violated because I had this guy. Um, right. This guy who slept or this who guy who was drunk, didn't, this right. guy who did nothing, this guy. Um, 
And and a lot of times, too, when you see those violations, you look at what that lawyer was going to get paid to do that case. And it's a really hard to argue with these lawyers that they should have done more when you see what they were going to get paid to do those things. So um, one time, uh, me, I think it was me and two other lawyers agreed to take a case um, that was a big, notorious case. He was being charged with three felonies. The three of us donated $1.6 million to represent him for three years, because that's how long they... And we would have each, by statute, gotten $1,350. So there it was. Right. Like, what that was what was going to... He was going to get convicted or plead otherwise. That was... Um, so you have ineffective assistance for counsel, and then you have a right, your due process rights, so that, you know, if the prosecutor had exculpatory information to give you, he had to give you that by law. So information that would have helped your case. Right. He has to give that to you. We find those violations... In almost yeah. every case. You all mentioned junk science, and I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about some examples of different types of evidence and different types of techniques that you might worry about um, fostering wrongful convictions. We just finished working on a case that we didn't um, prevail on, which breaks my heart, um, and it was a shaken baby syndrome case. Mm-hmm. And that is this whole uh, layer of of cases where if three things are found, subdural hematoma, edema, swelling of the brain, and retinal hemorrhaging, if you see those three things in an infant or a child, you're allowed to presume that the baby is shaken unless it can be proven otherwise. And so there's a whole subsection of lawyers that only litigate shaken baby cases. And New York has a, has a person, Kate Judson, who was our leader, our fearless leader for all this time. Um, but uh, our, our case was one of those cases. And we had ex- there were experts at trial who were prepared to come and testify for free that what they saw in this infant could not have been caused by shaking. Right. But they lawyer didn't realize he could ask for a continuance because the lawyers were her immigration lawyer and a med mal, a medical malpractice lawyer, nobody with criminal experience. And she was convicted. And so there's a whole group of scientists and doctors and lawyers who are uh, fighting against that presumption because it's called like a medical diagnosis of murder, that in a hospital, somebody gets to say somebody did something traumatic to this baby before we know a single thing about what happened. How does that presumption get set in the first place? I mean, how much data was there before they said these three things together? Um, I guess there'd be fights about that. But the guy who who was the original doctor, Dr. Norman Guthkelch, was the first guy to come up with this idea. And he has already retracted it and said it was that was me playing around. I tried I wrote a paper. I saw some kids that were hurt. I wondered if parents would get frustrated and shake their babies, which I don't know. Everybody loves seems to love the this image of you're so frustrated with your child that you just have to shake them um, and that it happens all the time. And so there's an industry around shaken baby syndrome. And so doctors now, if they see those things, they have to report that to Child Protective Services. So it becomes the wave that takes over. And the science has never been solid. So it's kind of a, it was kind of a trend. You know, mm-hmm. It became a trend 20 years ago, shaking baby cases. And now we got people on death row throughout the country who are waiting to die because of the shaken baby syndrome. And, and again, the science has never been clear. Junk science is responsible for so many uh, wrongful convictions because there's so much bad science. We've just about eliminated bite mark analysis, although it still exists, hair analysis, 
when the FBI says that its prime hair analysts are wrong 95% of the time, can imagine? Can you imagine what's happening at the state level? Uh, arson analysis. We have people on death row in this country now who are sitting there because the house burned down with the kids in it, and um, they've charged them with arson. And the, and the, the science is not there. The proof is not there. There was no crime. It was a house fire. Okay, and some kids got burned up. The junk science is we, 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 the national level. The Innocence Project works on a national level too to pass legislation that would clean up forensics and have some type of standard. You know, let's make our experts. If you take the stand as an expert, you've got to have some training, credibility, whatever, you, whatever your field is. And some of these people just adopt a field. And they go off to a weekend seminar. They got a certificate. They show up in Podunk, you know, wherever you are, Podunk, Virginia, and the jury's not sophisticated, and you got a coat and tie on, and you, got, you know some big words, and suddenly you're an expert. And people believe you. And that's how we get so many bad verdicts wrongful convictions from junk science. What can you tell us about eyewitness testimony and what wrongful conviction work has taught us and what science has taught us about that? So eyewitness uh, misidentification, I think, is 75% of all wrongful convictions that's involved, the eyewitness identifications are involved. Um, and it gets wor- It only gets worse. The more we learn about memory, the more we should mistrust ourselves on that, especially when you're in danger or fear, which is what usually is the case in these cases. Um, we have uh, we just got Messiah Johnson released, and his case was um, two masked men came into a beauty salon to rob. They had all the people lay down on the floor. By their testimony, everyone had on hoodies and glasses, and they did everything in their power to not be seen or noticed or, you know, remembered. Two weeks later, Messiah Johnson was walking into a bar wearing his prescription eyeglasses, not sunglasses, and somebody in a passenger seat who had been in the salon from, you know, across the highway identified him. And the police that night did a show up, which is when you bring a person to the victims, which is not, you should never do if you can avoid it, and they could have. And um, and then his assistant said, okay, who was with him at the time, made an identification. And then later, uh, another person in the um, salon made an identification in court. And we later found the man who did the uh, crime, and he admitted that he did it, and he told us who he did it with, and he told us about the dark sunglasses he wore. And and there was just no... We interviewed those people, and once you think you've done something like that, you just are... It's impossible a lot of times to convince them that they're wrong. Um, so eyewitnesses are terrible. There's studies everywhere about how bad they are. It's very difficult in Virginia to get a hearing and to get experts, to get a court to appoint experts so that you can educate the jury about how. Um, but many lawyers that I know would say, you can put all that on, and if the woman leans across the table and points at that guy, yeah. that's the only time that your jurors will have ever seen that happen, and they'll just think, she knows. I mean, there's so many ways to manipulate lineups, and there's so many ways to make them fair. And we, we have, again, a legislative proposal uh, that we file in all 50 states every year to make lineups fair, identification fair. Uh, we, we have the same thing for false confessions. It's very simple. Record all interrogations. 
They have the, they have, they have the video machines there. They have the tape recorders there. They don't turn them on until 15 hours have gone by and the guy's confessed. Then you flick it on and he's you know beat down. And he confessed. But the, the, the video cameras are there. Turn them on. Show the whole session and, and it would cut out the abuse. So we have all these proposals that we file again. And we're slowly, slowly making progress. Are there particular kinds of laws that you have more success with or particular states? Compensation. Uh, almost every state now has some kind of compensation scheme for people. Once you're, once you are uh, officially exonerated, um, then you can apply for money, and the, the schemes are vary greatly from state to state. But at least it's something. I think in, in Mississippi is fifty thousand bucks a year, uh, which is you know not much for what you've been through, but you know it's also a nice chunk when you beat, beats nothing. What's bad is when you have someone who this happened in Oklahoma. Six months ago, a guy served 30 years for a rape. It's a Perry Lott. It's a it's an Innocence Project case we're working on. He uh, served 30 years, black-on-white rape. He got convicted, always said he was innocent, finally checked DNA. Guess what? Somebody else, another rapist who's been in prison. So the prosecutor says, well, I don't believe the DNA. That's not unusual. It's not unusual in rural areas. I'm going to retry him. And so they bring him back to the county jail, make him sit there for a few months to, for another trial. And then the prosecutor offers him a plea. If you'll plead guilty to the rape for time served, you can walk out. Well, what are you going to do? So they take the plea. They plead guilty just to get out. He's going to get zero. He's getting nothing, okay, because he pled. And that happens so many times in these cases. So not everybody gets compensation. In terms of the causes for wrongful convictions. So you've talked about specific, you know, the specific bases that um, that often lead to it. But would you say it's the resources, right? It's the money that, that people don't have for their own defense. Would you say it's structural institutional causes in the way policing or prosecution or forensics are done at the state levels? Would you say it's bad apples? Would you say it's incentives? I mean, this is it's pretty rampant, right? So, so why can't we is just that? say it's everything you, you, you could just say said? Everything. I'm just curious if you think <laughs> that, it's anything that, more that, than that anything plus else. racism. Mm-hmm. It's just a fact that in many cases, black defendants are handled differently than white defendants. Almost all cops are white, and when there's a crime, they're just going to treat the black guy different. That's just the way it is, and I'm not sure how we change that. And once a, once a once a serious crime, once the investigation goes off track. And often it happens at the crime scene where you got a couple of detectives who are real smart and they look at the crime scene. They say, well, you know, uh, the book I wrote about, The Innocent Man, was a horrible murder. Uh, And the cops were at the crime scene. The girl was, you know, she'd been dead for a while. It was a mess. And the cops said, it's so violent and so bloody, it had to be two people. And from that moment on, that was their theory. It had to be two people. And by God, they convicted two people. Uh, turns out only one guy did it. He's, he's serving life without parole in Oklahoma right now. But they almost killed Ron Williamson in the process, and Dennis Fritz got a life sentence. But I mean, they, and w- once they get the tunnel vision, once they, they make this decision and they get tunnel vision, they exclude all evidence that, you know, is to the contrary. They, they, they can't wait to include evidence that's kind of shaky, whatever might, might buttress their case. And if it's a, if it's a black defendant and you've got white cops, uh, it's even worse. They're so, you know, they, they've got their man and they're going to exclude anything else that might 
that might prove otherwise. We have a, um, it wasn't one of our cases, but in Virginia, Marvin Anderson, who um, the victim went to the police and said it was a guy who said he, the guy who raped it was black on black and white rape, and and he said, you know, it was a, a person who's who said he had a white girlfriend during the rape. The the the, the rapist supposedly said to the white victim, I, uh, "I love, I really love having sex with white women. I have a white girlfriend." Boom, boom. <laughs> and at the time, in this small town outside of Richmond, Marvin was the only black guy that the cops knew who had a white girlfriend, mm-hmm. and that was it. That cost him twenty years. That was it. That cost um, him twenty years. Part of the other part, too, that I keep thinking about, and I know this is me being angry at, but the lack of consequences for bad behavior on the prosecutor, prosecutors never get in trouble for any of this. Police officers rarely get in trouble for any of this. And meanwhile, lawyers get disbarred. Um, and, and the quality of the lawyers that we give to people at that level it's not good, mostly, unless there's an office. <clears throat> so I feel like consequences have to be put in place. That you can't, you can't just. And and you know, recently somebody said, "Well, that prosecutor in Texas went to prison for ten days." Ten days. Yeah. That does nothing. He's the for only me. one we know of. We went for ten. That days. does nothing yeah. for me. Yeah. Like that doesn't solve anything. The consequences are uh, rather severe. Can be for the local taxpayers, in the innocent man, a small town of Ada, Oklahoma. The guys I wrote about, when they got out and exonerated by DNA, they sued everybody in the state of Oklahoma. I mean, they sued. They they had good lawyers too, and and they lined them up and shot them. And at the last minute, um, there were huge settlements, and the people in Ada had to raise property taxes twice to pay off the uh, judgments. That's not unusual in some of these cases. So there are, there are consequences. Now, the cops are never going to be fired. The prosecutors are going to get reelected or, or, or appointed to be a judge. That's just the way it happens. Uh, and so that, do that, the taxpayers know that that's why their property taxes are raised? They, I would they, imagine in a small place you yeah. would know. So our case in Lancaster, um, there was an issue of documents that we had been looking for for 10 years. Um, the case is 32 years old when we got relief for him. And what we kept going to, there were three prosecutors elected while we looked into this case. And each time I would go and say, I know there's missing documents. I know because when I look at the file and I would show them and they would say, we just can't find them. We just can't find them. Um, Right after we filed our habeas, the sheriff, the new sheriff who had no dog in this fight called me and said, Deirdre, we just found a box of documents in the destruction room and we don't know how it got there. We don't know who put it there, but I think it's the box you're looking for. And why don't you come tomorrow and look at these things? And by the time I got there, the court, the the uh, sheriff said, we have to lock you into a room because there's some people that know that you're being allowed to see these documents. And they're very angry. So we had armed guards, me and two students, who I would have never brought had I known that it was going to escalate to that. And uh, the sheriff said, well... I said, what is everyone so angry about? This is 32 years ago. And he said, well, they say that once you get your hands on these documents, you'll be able to sue this county bankrupt, which I don't know if that's the case or not, but that was stated. That was the stated reason. And you found the documents? We got, I don't know if we got everything, but we got enough to go back in and, you know, put our petition and say, look what was withheld with from us. And it was another one of these ridiculous hair, hair case you know, it was a silly case. Listen, I could write a book about the uh, the lost uh, rape kits, the lost police oh. files, the lost boxes of evidence. So they, they find in the courthouse um, 
basement or attic or the sheriff's old uh, garage or this stuff just, you know, and, and if you're lucky, they find it. You think about the people who, who aren't lucky, the stuff that's never found, and they're still serving time. But that those cases are, there are hundreds of them. Uh, fun to talk about, sad to, you know, read about, but they're there. One of ours that recent, our most recent um, release was Darnell Phillips. And we had looked for years for the physical evidence in his case and asked and asked in writing. And um, we did it repeatedly because we know that people say things are destroyed, but they're not. And they had told us that everything had been destroyed. The prosecutor had written a letter to the court saying everything has been destroyed. They um, they had tested a hair, found out it wasn't the, his hair. It wasn't a Negroid hair. And then the judge said, OK, now we have a ball game. Test everything. They came back and said, whoops, everything got destroyed after your order. Don't know how it happened. Whoops. Um, we kept asking. And eventually, a, a police officer answered our FOIA and said, well, actually, we do have a lot of physical evidence. What is it you're looking for? And we said, we just want the list of what you have so we can take it to the court and say, the next thing we know, we were redirected to the cop who took the confession that was never written down, never videotaped, never, our client said he didn't, he said he did. It was his word against. There was no writing. There was no videotape. He was going to be in charge of whether or not we got to see the evidence. And so, and he said, and I'm going to claim an exemption and you're not going to get the answer to that question. And then one day, years later, we Jenny was at the court looking for something. And one of the clerks said, I just wondered why you guys never tested the physical evidence in the Darnell Phillips case. And Jenny said, what physical evidence? And she said, we have it here. It's over here in the courthouse and went and got the box. And there it was, right? The, it's so like, there's no rules. There's no, there's nothing you can count on. Right, um, right. And you just have to be as big a loser as me and have nothing better to do than keep bothering people about these things that no one cares about. Loser, That's, I think, is the wrong word. Mm-hmm. Uh, so last question, where do we go from here? What's going to happen next? As far as wrongful convictions, um, I'm somewhat optimistic. There seems to be more of a um, consensus for serious criminal justice reform. You know, one bill was passed last month. Um, Both sides seem to be concerned about it for different reasons. We are optimistic, uh, guardedly, in that each year we will continue to um, pass legislation around the country, model legislation that we think will uh, prevent a lot of wrongful convictions. Uh, so it's, it's, the, the work is determined to be frustrating. But it's, it's, very, it's, it's fairly easy to send an innocent person to prison. It's pretty easy. Mm-hmm. If you get the right witnesses and a couple of snitches and a couple of crazy scientists and bogus experts and a sympathetic jury, you know, it's fairly easy to convict somebody, and it's virtually impossible to get them out once they're there. Uh, so... You know, that's, that's the kind of work we do. We, we're, we're committed to getting them out uh, and also changing the laws to prevent stuff in the future. It's a long, it's a long uphill fight, but we're climbing. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I agree. I want to put a more negative spin on it just because that's who I am. Um, I think transparency could change a lot of things. Like so much of this, of what happens to people in the criminal justice system is hidden. And and it's really not even a criminal justice system. It's thousands of systems. But, um, And I feel that if people knew that the adversarial system is not really what, what we're doing here, that's not what it is. And if people would just be honest that when you 
go to court and you somebody sitting in the chair between the lawyers that there's no presumption anymore. We that guy has got to talk away, talk his way out of it. And so I just think if we were more honest about what was happening and about what we have working, and I, I see no reason for people to um, not have to tell us what's going on in the criminal justice system. I don't see any reason why files have to be secret and people have to fight and litigate about them, because I think that would expose what exactly is happening. And and when people started to think that this might happen to them, because that's what happens. It's when it happens to someone you know that you start to see what actually goes on. But it strikes me uh, at the risk of promoting both of you, it strikes me that you are both doing incredible work to make the transparency greater, right? And to bring into many more people's lives awareness of how wrongful convictions happen and what needs to be done to fix them, right? So your books, the the Netflix show now, The Innocent Man, um, uh, the work that you do, Deirdre, and you know, I think there are more and more people out there who are doing this work. Mm-hmm. and publicizing this work. And um, and I think that's how change happens. Right. If, if, do, if you have a bunch of people who love doing the work and then you have John training the light on this, things will change. That's for sure. We hope. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't start writing a book hoping to make change. Uh, I don't Some books have in history, but I, I don't think about that. Uh, but if a book does entertain and captivate a reader and uh, inspire the reader to read the book and start thinking about something, then it's it's successful. Thank you both so much for coming. Our pleasure. Enjoyed it. Thank you for having us. So one thing that strikes me is that this is a story about science and technology, but it's it's also a story about people and their passions. And it's a story about it's a story about information and communication and how that can change things. So um, when John talks about the work that he does as an author and Deirdre says how important that work is to training a spotlight on the work that lawyers like her are doing, I think that's a really interesting um, uh commentary on how people can have different passions that all combine in a way to uh, to change society. And also, you know, a kind of interesting thing about that, John has been out there for a long time um, writing about these issues. But in recent years, we've seen podcasts like Serial or Making a Murderer with our UVA alum, Dean Strang, featured. Um, some, some types of media that I think didn't exist before, technological change enabled them. And the technology makes them kind of cheaper to do than maybe a serial um, television series would have been. And I think that's allowed uh, this issue to get lots more attention than it would have in a world before those technologies were available and before people were communicating about this in the way that they have. So um, it seems like it's a really interesting combination of science and technology changing, but also communication technology changing and people's ability to share information about this actually changing the world. Absolutely. And I was thinking as you were talking, it's also about how the law is a part of this larger ecosystem. So you have lawyers like Deirdre doing the work and then the kind of popular culture and media that you're talking about distributing it into the world. And then there's a feedback effect. So 
We've seen many more students coming to UVA Law School because of the Innocence Project, because they want to be a part of that work. And uh, so you see the the culture and the technology then feeding back into a desire for people to become lawyers, a desire for them to do this work, and creating more capacity, more human capacity to actually do the hard work in the trenches of identifying people who've been wrongly convicted and figuring out what the tools are uh, to challenge those convictions. That's right. And I think that that also goes to this becoming more of a bipartisan and less of a controversial issue. So I think there are many things that play into that. But I think one of them is the more attention there is on it, the more communication there is, uh, the more different people there are involved in the conversation that attracts more different people. So I think we've seen, you know, students who want to be prosecutors who want to sign up for the Innocence Project because they know, you know, in their mind, my job as a prosecutor will be to get this right. And a way to make sure that that happens is to study the cases where it's gone wrong. And um, I, I think you see this being something where lots and lots of different people think what we should be focusing on is trying to get this right. And what criminal justice should be about is trying to get this right. Um, and I think all of these trends that we're talking about have helped to make that the case. And hopefully more so in the future. Yeah. Well, that's going to do it for this very first episode of Common Law. If you're not already subscribed to the podcast, you can go ahead and get yourself subscribed on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you do, you'll also get access to another special episode. We're thinking of it as episode zero that's waiting for you in our feed where Leslie and I introduce ourselves. We reflect on some of our similarities and our differences, and we talk a little bit about what we're hoping to accomplish in this first season of our show. You'll find links to more information about today's guests in the show notes for this episode, and I recommend you check that out because they are very interesting people. We'll be back in a few weeks with another super interesting episode that explores blockchain technology and some of its implications for corporate law. Here's a little taste of that. Our economy lives and and breathes and depends on our ability to trust one another in transactions. And I think creating trust in a blockchain-based system is where the lawyers come in. Today's episode was produced by Tyler Ambrose, Tony Field, and Mary Wood. I'm Risa Golubuff, the Dean of the University of Virginia School of Law. And I'm Leslie Kendrick, the Vice Dean. Thanks for listening.